Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Luke chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word in your gospel today, and I pray that you would open our ears to receive it, and receive it into our hearts, and that you, by the power of your word, would transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. While it is the case that repentance, the message of repentance, is um, very near the heart of the Christian proclamation, Right, from John the Baptist, through the first preaching of Jesus, through the preaching of Peter on Pentecost. Right? Repent and be baptized. That's actually not the chief payload of the two parables that we just heard, of the lost sheep and the lost coin. They're not chiefly about repentance, they're chiefly about Christ. They're chiefly about Christ. Think about it, a sheep being carried on a shepherd's shoulders isn't doing much of anything. Right? The sheep is not doing much at all. The emphasis on that picture is on the shepherd carrying the sheep. Just so. Uh, I hope some of the comparisons that the parable map onto maybe caught your mind. But let me just unpack a few. The good shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. A picture of God the Son from his eternal rest in heaven, as it were to speak spatially, leaving the rest of heaven to come down and take on our human nature in the Incarnation. And he leaves on a mission to find those who have been lost and have them be found. And even the picture of sort of taking a burden on the shoulders has resonance with the fact that Christ took a burden on his shoulders, right? First, in taking on frail humanity, he who was the opposite of frail from all eternity, but then additionally taking on the burden literally on his literal shoulders when he carried the beam of the cross to die for our sins. And to connect the second parable of the woman trying to find the coin, it says she, um, she lights a lamp and sweeps just so Christ has lit a lamp of the scriptures. Psalm 119 describes the scriptures as a lamp that shines light out into the world. And then the sweeping is like the operation of the Holy Spirit scouring the earth to find the coins that will be found, us. He is seeking us out. And when his efforts of seeking produce the smallest noise, right? think of the sheep bleating, or you know, the floors were stone in Jesus' day, um, rough stone, generally. The coin would make a little clinking sound you know, I think of an almost windowless room, sweeping with a tiny little oil lamp, sweeping, and clink, oh, there's the coin. The moment we utter the smallest cry of, have mercy on me, the coin is found. The sheep is found. We're scooped up by his saving arms. And what joy he has. That picture of gathering the friends to come and rejoice, the church fathers interpret as, Christ gathering all the company of heaven to rejoice that we have been found. It's a picture of a party. 
And just as when we reflect and meditate in Holy Week on the depths of the sorrow of Holy Week, of Jesus' passion and death, and it's hard to get our minds to the bottom of the depths because being himself God, his experience then is nearly infinite. He himself is infinite, of course. Just so, we can't fathom the heights of joy that Jesus, the Son of God, has in having found and ransomed you and me. It's, all, it's, it's hard. We, we can't get to the top of it in our minds. These two parables are chiefly about Christ. That's the main thing I hope that you take away. There's a sort of attached codicil. Um, as St. Polycarp, uh, who was a second century martyr, he said famously, um, love what he loved. It's a great maxim to live by. Love what he loved. And so Christ loves repentance. He loves a sinner who repents. So in imitation of Christ, we should love what he loves, repentance. In the sort of context in which Jesus tells this parable with the Pharisees grumbling about these tax collectors repenting, of course that means forgiving others and delighting in their repentance. That when we see someone we know um, repenting, no matter what came before, to be glad for their repentance, just as Christ is glad. But I think it also means rejoicing in repentance in our own lives. Look at St. Paul. As we heard in 1 Timothy, he recounts sin he, sins he had done 30 years ago when he talks about blaspheming and murdering Christians. He's writing 1 Timothy in the 60s. He did those sins in the 30s. So he says, I formerly did those sins. But he brings it into the present tense. He says, and I am the chief of sinners. Because of something done 30 years ago, he in the present says, I am the chief of sinners. The Bible's teaching us a way of regarding sin that I think is different than our sort of common instinct today, right? Where we say, oh, what's in the past? Just don't think about it. Paul still thought about it. Thought about it to the point where he would say, I am the foremost of sinners in the present. That is true of me now because of what I did 30 years ago. Not was, but am. This is instincts that um, the church remembered for long ages, and I think has only sort of lately been fading away. Even Martin Luther, right, the great founder of our, the Reformation movement, the first of his 95 theses that kicked off the whole thing. Do you, do you know what it is? The first of the 95 theses is nailed on the Wittenberg door. The life of a Christian ought to be one of continual repentance continual repentance. So as Christians, we actually need to resist the impulse of the Pharisees we see in the gospel. It's an inner impulse to sort of, after a certain number of years, kind of reframe the Christian life as if all that sin and repentance stuff, that's in the past. And that's what the Pharisees wanted to do. They wanted to make religion not about sinners coming to God, but about, well, look how well I'm keeping the rules now. Right? St. Paul, if anyone had merit to do it, it would have been St. Paul. Right? Well, for 30 years I've labored as the most tireless missionary in church history. But he doesn't. We need to remember that we are never nearer. Hmm, that's not exactly true. I'll be more precise. Um, we draw incredibly close to the presence of Christ when we are repentant. That's when we're found on the shoulders of Christ. 
Listen to the words of um, the great Anglican theologian, uh, perhaps one of the greatest Anglican theologians, a 16th century uh, bishop named Richard Hooker. He wrote, my eager protestation, oh, he wrote books of theology that are like this long on the shelf. My eager protestations made in the glory of my ghostly strength, I am ashamed of. But those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness was bewailed have procured my endless joy. Those crystal tears wherewith my sin and weakness was bewailed have procured my endless joy. So do you feel that way about repentance? Christ does. He delights. It's, it has a savor of sweetness to him. And it should to us as well. It's not something we say, well, I guess I, I converted. I, I went up to the altar and made a profession 20 years ago, 40 years ago. No, in, the, in the present. To still repent. If, like that quote of Richard Hooker, sounds foreign, I would encourage you to consider that perhaps when it comes to repentance, you have dipped your foot in the water, maybe your whole leg, but you haven't jumped in all the way to be immersed in it. So just as a sort of footnote to this whole sermon, um, as a reminder of what the call is, I just put a little uh, visual mnemonic on the back of your bulletin if you want to glance at it. Um, just a reminder of the three components that, of which repentance is comprised. And I tried to break it down to the very pieces of the word. Remembering, right? Paul never forgot, I once killed a Christian. I once blasphemed the name of Christ. Remembering the sin. And then not remembering as some sort of encyclopedic fact, right, as emotionally neutral, but penitent, which is the churchy word for spiritual sorrow, which doesn't mean we go about just, you know, moaning all the time, but it means in our hearts, our heart is low when it comes to memory, penitence. And then resistance, the will to say, look, I don't want to fall into that temptation again. I don't want to sin against you, as we said in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned. I don't want to sin like that again. I want to resist. Impossible without God's help. But he also demands and asks our will to will resistance as part of that repentance. The three parts of repentance. But just to loop back where I began, this is all footnote to the fact that the repentance is the only thing we do. It's our tiny bleat. It's the clink of a coin against the stone. The chief work is, and the glory goes to Christ, who was looking for us in the first place. We never would have made that noise if the Holy Spirit hadn't moved on your hearts. Years ago, this very morning, when on a rainy, miserable day, so I should go to church and hear the word and receive the sacrament. That, that's the work of Christ, sweeping, continuing to gather his sheep and his coins, ever closer to himself. All glory to him. Amen.